Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hi, and welcome back to Criminal Broads, your go to podcast for stories about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Thank you for being here. Today we're going to talk about a case that was huge in the 90s. So some of you might remember it. If you happened to live in Southern California in the 90s, I'm guessing you probably remember it. Some of you will never have heard of it. I'm always amazed sometimes when I'm researching cases, you'll find people talking about how big the case was. You know, like it was front pages all over the country. It was international news. Every TV show was covering it around the clock. And it'll be a case I've never heard of. And you know why that is? It's actually sad. It's just not only are there just so many crime cases happening all the time, but there are so many quote unquote front page crimes happening. Like there are so many super famous crimes, air quotes, that they actually don't all stay famous. Isn't that weird? slightly related, you'll notice that more than one crime per century is called the crime of the century. Anyway, this crime was, I don't think, ever called the crime of the century in America, at least. But it's a wild one. We're going to talk about the case of the Han twins. And we are going to travel to a time and a place where, I'll say it, it would have been really cool to have your vans on skateboarding by the ocean listening to Nirvana, but that's not what this story is about. But we're going to Southern California in the 90s. Follow me there. Like many kids, I always wanted to be a twin. When I was in sixth grade, I met this magical set of twins, and they were fascinating enough to make me feel that being a twin was something deeply special. They were both blonde and soft-spoken, gentle and kind, and I remember them as being transcendentally beautiful, although I looked them up online recently, and the boy twin has aged into a rather boring-looking 30-something, which is, I guess, a fate that awaits all of us. But anyway— When we were kids, they intrigued me. I wanted to be like them. I wanted someone who looked just like me, someone to share my secrets, someone who, with their mystical powers, would feel sick when I was sick, would feel joy when I felt joy. Real twins are probably frustrated by all these wild assumptions that we single babies put on twinship. Throughout history and mythology, The way we've talked about twins is incredibly dramatic, incredibly tabloidy. The story of the earliest known set of twins on the planet is a tragedy. Their bones were discovered in 1997, still nestled inside their young mother's pelvis. She had died giving birth to them 7,700 years ago. In mythology, we find twins everywhere, like the legendary Romulus and Remus, the boys who were raised by wolves. In the ultimate twin move, Romulus killed his brother after an argument about where to build a city. Then, freed from his burden of twinship, and possibly with his heart shattered in two, he went on to found Rome. 
In mythology and in real life, twins are ripe for metaphor. They can represent two halves of the self or two opposing selves. They can complete each other or they can compete with each other. They are often put in nice, neat, opposite categories. The hot one and the smart one. The kind one and the mean one. The good one and the evil one. Sunny Han was the good twin, and Gina Han was the evil twin. If you believed the tabloids, the media frenzy, and the episode of Investigation Discoveries show evil twins. Of course, as with all things, the truth was far more complicated. Sunny and Gina were born in South Korea on April 30th, 1974. They were identical twins. Sunny was born first. Later, people would make a big deal of this. Their relatives would tell journalists that Korean culture declared that Gina had to be deferential to her older sister. People speculated that Gina resented this, that it drove her crazy. But the twins themselves never spoke in those terms. They thought of themselves as equals, even until the end, when Gina was saying things like, if I don't kill her, she'll kill me. Yes, equals. In that mysterious way of twins, the two were extremely close, even when they were separate. Their mother, Boo Kim, was a single mom, and she couldn't care for both of them, so she sent tiny baby Gina away to live with her grandfather. She kept Sunny. For the next three years, the girls were raised apart, but they still seemed to sense that the other one was there. If Sunny felt sick, she'd tell her mom that Gina was feeling the same way, and they'd go to the hospital, and Sonny would be right. Gina would be there, too. Their mother later told reporters that Sonny and Gina were not two separate people. There's only one, she said. At the age of three, the girls were reunited. Both lived with their mother now, and they grew even closer. Up until the fourth grade, they always wore the same outfits. But their mother was erratic and continually abandoned them. She had gotten married to a man that the girls thought was their biological father, but then Boo Kim divorced him and took the twins to the United States when they were 12 years old. There, she dropped them off with relatives in Seattle and moved down to Orange County, California, to start life on her own. The girls spoke no English. After a year, Boo Kim decided to let her daughters join her. But life in Orange County wasn't easy for any of them. Boo Kim was working as a cocktail waitress, and she didn't make a lot of money. And when she did make money, she'd gamble it away. She had become addicted to gambling, and she would often disappear for long stretches of time while her daughters scrambled to find something to eat. During one especially bad gambling bender, Sonny and Gina were placed in a children's home, and their mother had to come and find them when she finally resurfaced. So the girls planned to escape from her. They convinced her to let them move south to a town called Campo, which was right on the Mexican border, where they had an aunt and an uncle. After that move, the girls more or less fell out of touch with their mom. She never once visited them during high school. In high school, though, 
They crushed it. Remember that Sonny and Gina hadn't come over to the U.S. until they were 12 years old. They had to learn English from scratch, as well as all the social and cultural and educational requirements of a new country. This was no easy task, and they were now attending a school with very few Asian students. But the girls were determined to make it. They were both extremely smart, and teachers remembered that they'd carry around a huge Korean-English dictionary, which they consulted all the time. Their senior year, they got straight A's and became co-valedictorians. As one of their teachers said, they really wanted to succeed. There was very little support and encouragement from home for them to do that. It was an inspiring success story. A little slice of the American dream, you could say. But outside of the classroom, things weren't so idyllic. This episode is sponsored by Athena Club. Everyone, I need to get very, very vulnerable with you and talk about a huge problem in my marriage, which is that I always steal my husband's razor. He hates it. He has asked me not to. I don't listen. I keep doing it. I know it's wrong. I cannot be stopped. It's sociopathic of me. Until now, because I've met Athena Club and their amazing razor. Athena Club's razor is gentle on my skin. I have the pink version, which I love. It sticks to the wall of my shower with this handy little magnetized thing that goes on the wall and the razor sticks to it and it keeps it out of the way and looks really nice. Athena Club's razor has thousands of five-star reviews and is designed with built-in skin guards and an innovative handle to help prevent razor burn while being gentle on curves. And this razor kit I'm telling you about is only $9 because, guys, Razors are so overpriced, especially women's razors. It's such a racket. And it comes with your choice of handle color. Again, I chose pink. Technically, I think it's called coral. It's beautiful. An extra blade head and a magnetic hook for easy shower storage. So show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code BROADS. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B dot com with promo code BROADS, as in criminal, for 20% off. The trouble with the Han twins was that they were very smart, but they were also emotionally unstable. They didn't know how the real world worked. As one of their friends told the Los Angeles Times, they didn't know the difference between wants and needs because half the time they didn't have what they needed, so their wants got out of control. One of their neighbors put it this way, they seemed to lack plain practical sense. They didn't seem to know how to cope with things. During their senior year of high school, while they were making those straight A's, Sunny got kicked out of the house. She had written a cruel letter about her aunt to her mother, and her aunt awkwardly found the letter and read it. So Sunny moved in with her boyfriend's parents for the rest of high school. After the girls graduated with high honors, they couldn't seem to maintain their flawless track record. Well, it was flawless on paper. Gina was already shoplifting makeup from Target. 
They were growing apart, no longer sharing the same dictionary, the same goals. Maybe that had something to do with the fact that their behavior was getting worse and worse. Sunny earned a scholarship to college, but she dropped out after three semesters, distracted by what she called boyfriend problems. Her problems weren't just boy problems, though. At one point, she swiped a credit card from one of her rich friends and spent $1,300 at a shopping mall on designer sunglasses, shoes, a watch, jeans, and lingerie. She said that she didn't think her friend would mind because her friend's family was so wealthy. In the meantime, Gina was having problems of her own. Like her sister, she found the real world the post-high school world, difficult to navigate. She tried to join the Air Force, but then she started backtracking and tried to get discharged. First, she said that her dad was sick, and then she said that she was a lesbian, and then she claimed that her superiors were threatening to throw her into jail. The lies worked, and the Air Force let her go. She found a new job as a blackjack dealer and quickly started gambling herself. Just like her mother, the gambling got its teeth in her. She couldn't control herself. She lost so much money that in January of 1996, at the age of 21, Gina tried to kill herself. The co-valedictorians and their huge Korean-English dictionary were no more, it seemed. The twins were flailing now. But who could blame them, given their upbringing? They had overcome so much. An unstable childhood, a new culture, a mother who was rarely there. Through it all, they had each other, even when they were separated. But now, their relationship was really starting to splinter. They had always fought, as siblings do, but their fights were getting worse and worse. We would fight all the time, said Gina. Find the right words to hurt each other, even try to choke each other, throw things, ruin each other's stuff, cut our clothes. In an attempt to make her gambling debts go away, Gina had started stealing money from friends and relatives. She stole about $40,000 over the span of just two months. She'd also started pretending to be sunny when it was convenient. She'd sign checks with her sister's name, and she'd use her sister's social security number. She stole money from her sister, too. And she told her roommates that Sunny was keeping a lot of money from her. She said that Sonny was getting $1,000 a week from their family and that the $1,000 was supposed to be shared between the two of them, but Sonny wouldn't let Gina have her part. This was probably a lie. Gina told a lot of lies. But it was clear that the resentment between them was growing. For stealing all that money from her friends and family, Gina was given 10 days in jail and three years of probation. After Gina got out of jail, Sunny allowed her sister to move in with her for a while. Now that they were living together again for the first time in years, their fights got worse. Three times, neighbors called police to the apartment to break things up. At one point, Gina stole Sunny's beloved BMW for two days, and when she came back, Sunny was so furious that she gave Gina a bloody nose. When police showed up a fourth time to break up the fighting— they arrested not Gina, the BMW thief, but Sunny herself. As it turned out, there was a warrant out for Sunny's arrest because of the mall spending spree she'd gone on with her friend's credit card three years earlier. So now Sunny was the sister spending time in jail. In the meantime, Gina continued to steal. 
When Sunny emerged from jail, she found that her sister had taken her BMW again, her ID, her credit cards, and money from her bank account. Sunny pressed charges, and Gina was arrested for the second time at a Bank of America while pretending to be Sunny. By the spring of 1996, the sisters were 22 years old and furious at each other. Because Gina was already out on probation when she was arrested this second time, she was given a much longer sentence than her first one. She spent the entire summer and the first part of the fall in jail. In October, she was given a work furlough in San Diego, where she was allowed to spend five hours a day out of the jail. She called Sunny and asked if Sunny would bring her some clothes and her driver's license, but Sunny refused. In fact, Sunny told her sister that she had moved to Irvine, that she would not share her new address, and that she didn't want anything to do with Gina. Then, Sunny hung up the phone. Gina's anger at her sister seemed to harden then into something more serious. She told one of her fellow inmates that she despised Sunny. She said that she was going to escape from jail, pawn a bunch of jewelry, run off to Tijuana, and fly to Korea from there. And at the first opportunity, Gina did just that. She ran away from her work furlough and she vanished into San Diego. But she wasn't ready to fly to Korea just yet. She had one more American task left to accomplish. Sunny Han, her co-valedictorian, the one who used to wear matching outfits with her, the one who felt sick every time she felt sick, Sunny Han was going to have to die. Now on the run from jail, Gina recruited three friends and drove up to Orange County to try and find Sunny's new apartment. On the drive, Gina ranted and raved about how she wanted her sister hurt, no, she wanted her sister dead, and she wanted it done that very day. She asked her friends if they'd do it and if they knew where to get a gun. She yelled at them that if they wouldn't do it, she'd do it herself. They drove around Irvine for a while with Gina raving looking for Sunny's apartment, but they couldn't find it and had to return to San Diego. Gina didn't cool off after that. Instead, she continued to plot. On October 5th, she told another group of acquaintances that Sunny had stolen her BMW and that she wanted to get it back. She also told them that because of Sunny's theft, she wanted her sister to be beaten up. She offered them $80 each to do it, saying that if they beat Sunny up so badly that she died, well, that would be okay. By now, Gina had figured out where Sunny lived, and so she and her friends drove to the apartment. No one was home. Gina insisted on waiting. She raved that if she didn't kill Sunny, Sunny would kill her first. She also told her friends that she had bags in the trunk of the car so that if she killed her sister, she could clean up the mess. Eventually, her friends grew restless and spooked and demanded to be taken home. But Gina could be quite convincing, and she'd convinced one person who was there that day. His name was Archie Bryant. He was 16 years old to Gina's 22. 
Gina and Archie roped in another boy, John Syarath, who was only 15. And then they got to work. Gina went shopping for props, magazines, so that the boys could pretend to be door-to-door magazine salesmen, rope, tape, and gloves for subduing Sonny and hiding fingerprints, and last but certainly not least, she bought garbage bags and pine sole. Later, prosecutors would argue that Gina, who had no home at the time, had no need for things like garbage bags and pine sole, unless she had been planning to dispose of a body to clean up blood. The next day was November 6, 1996. That afternoon, 15-year-old John Syarath knocked on the door of Sunny's apartment and told one of her roommates that he was selling magazines. The roommate said that she didn't want to buy any and closed the door. Not long after that, that roommate left for school. Now the only people in the apartment were Sunny and another one of her roommates, Helen Kim. A few hours later, John and Archie both knocked on the apartment door. Helen Kim answered and said that she didn't want to buy any magazines. As she started to close the door, Archie whipped out a gun. The two boys pushed their way inside, knocked Helen to the floor, tied her hands behind her back, and started duct-taping her mouth. Sunny was in the bathroom, putting on her makeup. She'd just gotten out of the shower. Suddenly, she heard her roommate scream and beg, Please don't hurt me. Take anything you want. A male voice replied, Shut up! Sunny moved fast. She darted into her bedroom, grabbed her cell phone, and then ran back into the bathroom and locked the door. As quickly as she could, she called 911. She told the dispatcher that her apartment was being robbed and that she thought her roommate was being raped, and she pleaded with them to hurry. Just then, Archie burst into the bathroom, holding the gun. You called the police, he said, and he waved his gun at her, but she told him that no, she'd just been talking to a friend. He threw her to the ground and told her to be quiet or else he'd shoot her. In the meantime, her roommate Helen had managed to get her hands untied. She raced for the door, but the boys caught her and tied her up again. I could shoot you for that, Archie said. Then the boys put both Sonny and Helen into the bathtub with their hands tied and duct tape wrapped around their heads. Sonny could hear them going through her purse. And then John went outside where Gina was waiting in a rental car in the driveway. We don't know precisely why he went outside, but later prosecutors would theorize that he went outside to tell Gina that everything was ready for her that her sister was bound and gagged and waiting in the bathtub, ready to be shot. This would either mean that Gina wanted to be there when her sister died, or that she wanted to do the killing herself. But then, the plot changed. Sonny heard someone yell, Shit! Police! 
Suddenly, Archie was racing back into the bathroom, literally shaking with fear. He started untying the girls as fast as he could, and he told them to tell the police that the entire thing had been a joke. The girls came out of the apartment, crying and pulling duct tape out of their hair, to a yard full of police officers. Gina, who was still in the car in the driveway, thought fast. At first, she had told the officers that she lived there. Now that Sunny was out of the apartment, she ran up to her sister and the officers, screaming and crying and asking if everything was okay. The officers told her to go back to the car for her own safety and stay out of the way. And so she did. With permission from the law, she and John Syrath got back into the rental car and drove off. Gina's flight didn't last long. She was arrested on her way to an Alamo rent-a-car near the San Diego airport. Upon her arrest, she told officers that her name was Sunny Han, and she flashed Sunny's driver's license. It didn't work. Gina, Archie, and John all pled not guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit murder, residential burglary, and false imprisonment. The deputy district attorney announced that the teenage boys would be prosecuted as adults. Bail for the boys was set at 250000 each, but Gina was being held without bail. At the very first whiff of this twin-on-twin case, the press went wild. Gina herself told the Orange County Register, What my sister is saying is not true. I'm fighting those charges. Their uncle, the one they lived with during high school, also talked to the papers. I can't trust what either one of them tells me, he said. It didn't take long for the twins to be transformed into characters. Sonny, the eldest, the more outgoing, the good twin. And Gina, the youngest, the jealous one, the evil twin. The Korean media went especially wild over the case. Not just Southern California's Korean language media, mind you, but the media in South Korea itself. This case was often the top story in the entire country. Once, Korean journalists chased Sunny so aggressively that she fell on a staircase. Amid the chaos, Sunny got a media handler. She took $10,000 to appear on the tabloid news show Hard Copy, and she also went on a talk show hosted by Lisa Gibbons. She was on the 666th episode of the show, actually, which was called Evil Twins Betrayed by Blood. Lisa showed Sunny a clip of her sister appearing in court to hear the charges against her, and Sunny burst into tears. Three months after the crime, Sunny visited her sister in jail for the first time. Their mother came along, too, and all three of the women wept profusely. Gina told her family that she was innocent and that her teenage accomplices had actually been scamming her. And Sunny left the jail totally convinced— She's not been plotting this, she told the Orange County Register. I'm 100% sure there's no way she could have done this. Gina's trial started that October. Her defense was that she was merely going to Sunny's apartment to pick up a few of her things and that she brought the teen boys with her in case Sunny turned violent. Sunny testified as a witness for the prosecution 
but it was unclear if her testimony helped or hurt her sister. At first, she took the stand in high heels and a periwinkle suit, where she explained how she and Gina had hit, scratched, and pinched each other since they were children. As she described her experience of the November 6th attack, she would sometimes look over at her sister and smile. The next day, Sunny appeared on the stand again, but this time she was wobbling and slurring. She knocked over a microphone, and she told the judge that she'd broken up with her boyfriend, purchased three boxes of sleeping pills, and washed down about 30 of the pills with a beer. When the judge told her to step down from the stand, she could hardly walk on her own. A detective took her to the hospital. Later, she admitted that the real reason for her suicide attempt was that she didn't want to testify anymore against her sister. But Sunny recovered, and she did testify again. That time, as Gina's lawyer questioned her, asking her about her bond with Gina and about how much they relied on each other after their mother abandoned them, both of the sisters teared up. We went shopping, said Sunny. We went to go out drinking to a club. We watched movies all the time. I tell her everything. Gina watched from the defense table, sniffling. Gina wasn't always sad, though. She, she truly seemed to think that she would be found not guilty. She wrote a letter to a friend saying that after the trial was over, she wanted to go to college and live in Beverly Hills. Gosh, I can hardly wait, she wrote. The general consensus in the Southern Californian Korean-American community was that she'd be found not guilty, too. And so Gina, along with everyone else, was shocked when the jury found her guilty of all the counts against her. Gina wept in the courtroom as the guilty verdict was read, and Sunny cried from her apartment, watching it on television. Sunny said that the verdict was her fault, that she should have let her sister stay with her, should have been nicer to her. There is no such thing as good and evil twins, she said. I want people to know that I love her and my sister loves me. No matter what others say, I'm going to stand by my sister. As Gina waited for her sentencing, Sunny barely left her apartment except to see a psychiatrist for depression. In the meantime, a Korean newspaper uncovered a bombshell. The man that the twins thought was their biological father was actually not their dad. Their mother confirmed this truth. She told the Los Angeles Times that the girls, quote, don't know the face of their father. The day of Gina's sentencing finally arrived. Despite protests from a legal advocacy group based in Korea and from the Korean-American Federation of Orange County, and despite a speech Gina gave where she begged the judge for mercy while crying uncontrollably, the judge gave her the toughest sentence possible, 26 years to life. Later that week, Gina tried to kill herself for the second time by overdosing on Tylenol. Jail officials had no idea how she'd managed to collect so many pills. Archie was given 16 years, and John was given 8 years. The three co-conspirators were sent their separate ways. Sonny vanished from the headlines. 19 years later... 
the parole board recommended that Gina be released. She was 43 then and longing to return to society. Her prosecutors opposed the release, writing a letter full of strong statements like this one. The offense in this case was carried out in an especially cold, brutal, and callous manner, demonstrating zero regard for the life and suffering of her sister, Sunny Han, as well as her sister's roommate. But for Sunny Han miraculously having a cell phone on her person when Gina Han's accomplices stormed the apartment, this would have most certainly been a first-degree murder, if not a double homicide. The letter went on to declare that a forensic psychologist for the parole board had diagnosed Gina with borderline personality disorder with antisocial traits, and that Gina had never participated in any mental health treatment. Gina didn't have much insight into her own crime, the psychologist said. She, quote, did not appear to have many emotions tied to her criminal behavior. The creepiest detail in the letter, though, was the fact that Gina had been corresponding with men all over the world, men who gave her job offers, housing offers, and even huge amounts of money. The letter went, At the parole hearing, Gina Hahn, at first blush, appeared to have attempted introspection. However, she is very intelligent and still manipulative. As an example, in support of her parole plans, she submitted to the board letters from men all over the country and even abroad that she had met while in prison. In just writing letters to them, she facilitated them in offering her money, lodging, jobs, and with regard to a gentleman in England, even giving her $100,000 after only corresponding with her for 12 months. This manipulative ability is not surprising, given her extreme intelligence coupled with an untreated personality disorder. The fact remains that she is still flexing the manipulation muscles that she used when she recruited two young men to murder her sister, and they appear to be as keen as they were in 1996. This letter from the prosecutors did not do the trick, though. The psychologist that they quoted had already declared that Gina was a low risk for violence. And anyway, prosecutors are supposed to argue dramatically for people to be locked up. And so, on May 24th, 2018, Gina was released on parole. Did she rush straight back into her sister's waiting arms? No one knows. Back in 1998... Sunny told the Los Angeles Times that she felt like her sister hadn't told her the truth. She said that she wasn't ready to see Gina again, though she said that she would be someday. Gina had always insisted that she hadn't meant to hurt her sister, which seems to be an obvious lie given the gun and the garbage bags and the pine sole. But Gina had also always insisted that she loved her sister— And Sonny had always insisted that she loved Gina, and that seems like the truth. Can both of these things be true at once? Can you love someone and plot against them? Can you want to be them and want to destroy them? In the story of Romulus and Remus, did Romulus regret killing his brother? One academic paper says he did not regret it. A history website for kids said that he did regret it. 
clearly the idea that he immediately regretted it, that he mourned his brother lavishly, that he never really meant to hurt his brother. Well, that's an easier story. The other version is cold and bleak. But which one is true? Until the twins speak again, we'll never really know. That's all, folks. What a wild story, right? As always, tell me your thoughts, your interpretations of it. What does it all mean? What are the correct metaphors to use? Should we stop using metaphors entirely? Contact me at criminalbroads at gmail.com. Criminalbroads.com is the website for this show. Instagram.com slash criminalbroads is where you can find photos of Sunny and Gina and everyone else involved in this case. You can also message me there. You can post about how much you love the podcast and you can tag me in it and we'll be best friends forever. I mean, whatever, no pressure. And I'm going to be back here next week with another famous case. Oh, I'm pinching the bridge of my nose right now. I know. I start doing famous cases and then look at me. I do two in a month. It's ridiculous. Two in two months. I'm out of control. (laughs) I'm going to do a case. Let me tease it to you. So you know who my book is called Confident Women and it's about con women. Yes, you know, I've talked about it enough. I keep getting messages from people being like, why didn't you include <laughs> in your case and your book? And I say, because there's already a lot written about her. And I just get radio silence back. I've decided this is a case I do want to talk about. Don't want to put it in the book. Too late to put it in the book, even if I wanted to. So I'm going to cover it on my podcast. All right. You know who I'm talking about? Am I being really mysterious or really obvious? I can't tell. Either way, I'll see you back here next week with a story of a modern day con woman. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.